1: Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grasso uh, with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Mind Pod Network. My guest today for this inaugural launch is David Silver, who I'm very honored to have. David co hosts the Mind Rolling Podcast with Raghu Marcus, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, and for those of you that by chance aren't familiar with David, I just wanted to quickly give you his rather impressive bio. David Silver started his innovative media career in the late 60s, hosting WGBH TV's What's Happening, Mr. Silver. David's 1979 Warner Brothers feature No Nukes helped start the whole trend of music activism feature documentaries. He also wrote the Billboard number 1 MGM film The Complete Beatles, the biopic movie of choice about history's most famous band, David has worked with Bruce Springsteen, Bob Marley, Ringo Starr, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Roger Waters, and many others. He has created dozens of CDs and movies, including pairing Allen Ginsberg with Paul McCartney and producing the film biography of Timothy Leary. In 2009, David was the consultant to Ang Lee, the Academy Award-winning director of his Universal Focus Features release, Taking Woodstock. Since 2006, he has also been writing, directing, and consulting with Ram Dass' Love Serve Remember Foundation, and in 2012, directed the Cultivating Loving Awareness documentary. And David, I have a feeling that even that biography just barely begins to scratch the surface of all the incredible things you've been doing with your life.
2: Well, you know, it's weird when you hear them uh, read back to you because, you know, life is so existential for me. I barely know that mm-hmm. i mean you know what i mean i mean i know this morning i know that my kitten is now trying to jump on my back and <laughs> <laughs> you know i don't i don't want to sound as if i'm a, a complete moron but the truth is i did do all of those things and, and actually many others but recently i was thinking about it you know and um i, I for some reason i i saw that bio in another context mm. and i thought to myself you know none of those things were ambitious um reaches, uh, almost everything I've ever done came kind of in the flow and um, gave me a lot of, of sort of insight into the fact that um, if, you're, if you're in the right place in a certain kind of way, I'm not quite sure what that means, but in the right place, things come at you. I'm sure you found that too, Chris. And, yes. um, you know, for instance, uh, the, 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 the Beatles film, which is probably the most sort of uh, I don't know, prestigious Thing I've ever done um, came at me in the most weird way. Um, I was at, um, or a friend of mine was at a dinner party in New York City uh, in the eighties, and um, sitting next to him was a, a, a terrific guy called Patrick Montgomery, mm. who directed quite a few films for PBS. And uh, he announced to the the people at the party that. He'd just been given the first, uh, first time ever the rights to the Beatles' entire catalog to make a documentary about them. Wow. And, um, you know, everybody sort of cheered and everything. I wasn't there. And, you know, the, then the party sort of broke up. And he was sitting next to a, a, a marvelous guy called Rick Traum, who was the head of late night television for NBC at that time. He was in charge of Saturday Night Live and Johnny Carson and was the sweetest, mildest, and most intuitive person I've ever met in media. Uh, Just a a marvelous man. And Patrick, if if following this, turned to Rick and said, that's all very well, everybody clinking glasses. Hmm. But we've been through 23 writers uh, in preparing for this film and none of them uh, were acceptable to us, to... um, the producers, the executive producers, or Apple Corps, which was the Beatles company. And we actually do not have a writer. And we're a bit freaked out because if we don't get one within the next two or three weeks, it's done. We're not going to get this project. And Rick Tram turned to him and said, I just did two specials for NBC with this guy called David Silver, and he's your man. I'm going to write it. And he wrote my name down on a napkin in that classic way, you know, and my phone number. And the next day, I was at home, and I got this phone call, and... Patrick Montgomery, the director, called me and said, we've been told to call you. We don't know you. Uh, would you like to come in and talk to us? Uh, we, we're doing a film about the Beatles. Now, just to say that at that time was so bizarre because they never gave the rights to anyone. Yeah. Uh, and I thought it was sort of kind of a rather lame practical joke. And I said, well, what do you mean you've got, you're doing a film about the Beatles? Nobody does a film about the Beatles. And he said, well, we've been given the rights because I did a short film about them, about a book called The Complete Beatles which was the first actually accurate transcription of all their lyrics and, and, and music. And um, in London, EMI, who owned this catalog, uh, asked me to do, for, for the first time, a, a biography, a biopic, a documentary about the Beatles. So come in. I went in that afternoon. I was thrilled, you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> Chris, I was confronted with a Steenbeck, and for those of you who don't know, that's a a film, uh, editing machine which still exists but in the age of video it's a bit antique
3: yeah.
2: it was a thing that you press buttons and the film went through various rollers and things and you saw it on a screen they gave me that and they gave me nine minutes of the footage and said write nine minutes of narrative right then <laughs> and there was an old typewriter it was on 25th street in, a, in a, a beautiful loft but the typewriter was old and I could hardly use it it was one of those things where you really had to press hard to get the thing right. and I was just thought, okay this gig is going away really quickly because I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. But I looked at it and I wrote, you know, down and, and gave it, typed it and gave it to the director, Patrick. And, and then I left. And on the way home, I was just completely terrified because I realized I didn't write anything particularly spectacular. Yeah. Just what you, I, I thought, I've just lost this. And it's a dream writer's gig. And um, about three hours later, they called me. He called me and said, we liked what you wrote. You're hired. Wow! After the next uh, twenty months, I worked exclusively on that film, and it was a thrill.
1: And it paid off because, I mean, it sold millions of copies, right? I guess, yeah. And and but
2: you know, more important than just sort of bragging about it is is the fact that it was very much out of the blue, mm. and suggested to me that there are forces, karmic forces,
3: mm.
2: in the universe that attract things together like you know, like um, iron filings to magnets, mm. and that you're not completely in control of what you actually end up doing. Yes, one has a will. Where there's a will, there's a way. But so many projects that I've wanted to do in my life, that I really wanted to do, fell into the toilet very sure. quickly. And I had no chance with them. And it seems in my particular case that it's always been like that. Uh, My friend Danny Goldberg, um, who some of the people on Mindpod Network will know, and actually he's going to be doing a podcast for us, Uh, fantastic guy, uh, manager of of Nirvana and um, headed Led Zeppelin's record label and Mm. many successes, chairman of Warner Brothers Records. Um, You know, he and I have had so many experiences together of things just happening, of just coming. Even though there was, uh, you know, a lot of effort, Um, Danny and I found that many times it was just there waiting for us, kind of. Mm. And it's never been a big money thing. And one of the things that occurred to me was that if you're chasing money, you end up doing things sometimes you don't want to do and you make the money and you have your house in the Hamptons and and a, a nice dark gray BMW, but you don't necessarily do what's in your heart. Yes. And Danny Goldberg called me in 1970 or 71, and said, I've been, I'm going to this meditation, and it's, it's a thing where people sing, it's called a kirtan, and um, Ramdas, uh who he knew for some reason, uh, asked me to go, and I went last week, and it was incredible, and you should come, and I said, no way, I don't like that kind of spiritual nonsense. Right. Even yeah. though I was kind of a spiritual person, I just didn't like to be around stuff like that. Yeah. He said, you've got to come. And that's how I met Ramdas and Krishnadas and Ragu and at least twenty other people who'd been with Maharaji. Yes. Just because one person had been there and been impressed and knew Ramdas, that came. If that hadn't happened, I would never. Have, I probably would have known about Ramdas, but I wouldn't have been involved with him. So that's a long-winded response, <laughs> response to your, your wonderful introduction. <laughs> Let's leave it at that and say the going with the flow is a '60s
1: term. Well,
2: I'm still doing it.
1: I love it because I always, you know, when I, when I speak or I do uh, whatever interviews and this and that, um, people read my bio and I always feel a little weirded out by it because yeah, you know, I have done those things, but I think about who I am as an everyday individual and I'm just some guy, like I'll watch the Simpsons, you know, and like, you know, whatever (laughs) that's, yeah, I've, I've uh, been blessed to do some, some neat things, but you know, I'm just your average guy every day. And I, I love what you were saying about how you know the karmic pull of things just happening um it it actually immediately brought me back to about four years ago when i left uh rehab um i was there for for those who don't know for uh for alcohol and and drugs and um and it was just like the lowest point in my life it was a cycle i'd been going through for about 10 years but this was like i thought i'd hit rock bottom but this was the bottom gave out rock bottom so I came home after that. Um, young thirties had to move back in with my parents. I had lost my job of five years. I had absolutely nothing. Very humbling experience for me. I had to file for unemployment. And I mean, I've been working since I was sixteen. You know, always holding down a job and um, really supporting myself, um, and for the most part. But I came home with nothing. You know, the one thing I really did, though, have was this you know my that armor that I had been putting on my heart just kind of shattered after this experience and I was able to really start touching these raw and vulnerable places the wounded places inside of me that I was too scared to go to prior to this experience so what I would start doing every day is before I'd meditate just set a very simple intention that um spirit whatever you'd like to call it um but you know God uh, being whatever, but that it would help me get out of my own way, small self way so that its guidance would be what's leading me through the day. And I, that's what I attribute to the fact that I, you know, I've written a book and I have a second book coming out. And here I am doing this podcast with, you know, this incredible network of teachers who are like my great teachers. Um, but I look at that, you know, because I didn't go to school for writing. There's and you and I actually talked about that somewhat recently, but I, you know, there was no real rhyme or reason as to why I should have written a book. And I know a lot of great writers who studied writing, went to school for writing, and they haven't had this opportunity. But in retrospect, I look at that, you know, that karmic kind of pull of things, and, uh, and I see now, you know, it's been out for just over a year, and um, and it's actually been of service to some people. So I get it. It wasn't really about me, you know, and uh I mean I did the legwork, like you said, there's a lot of work that goes into what we do. But um I yeah, I really appreciated you saying that. And so with that karmic pull, I know you met, you know, Ram Dass like roughly thirty five years ago or so. Um I loved I love that story, you know, about that you, you wrote about that in the uh the book. I forgot the title, the Great Encounters of with Ram yeah. Dass or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh But then you go on to also talk about a a great experience you had with Bob Marley and Ram Dass and Friends that was a few years later, if I'm correct.
2: Yeah, I mean, I met Ram Dass in the early 70s, but um, in the 80s, well, actually it was the late 70s, it was because Bob died on May 11th, 1981, I guess, and that could be wrong, but I I think it's, I know it was May 11th, was it 80 or 81? I'm not sure. (laughs) I worked with Bob extensively, Um, I was fortunate um, because no one was interested at that time in in spending any money on reggae artists and I fell into a situation where I did a a documentary about Peter Tosh who was Bob's uh, partner with Bunny Whaler in The Whalers and then uh, got an angry phone call from Don Taylor who was Bob Marley's manager uh, saying, "Why the man doing it about Peter, you know, Bob is the man and I said, well, I'm sorry. I'd love to work with Bob. He said, well, I'll take you up on that, man. Come and meet me with him. So I met with him in New York, and we did quite a lot of stuff with Bob. Yeah. But yeah. And I was honored to do that because Bob was a, a, an amazing being.
3: Yeah.
2: That uh, changed my life in the sense that and, – and you know why he changed my life? He changed my life because he was friends with – I was friends with him. I was so proud of that. That's it incredible. The films. It was just hanging out with him in his house in Hope Road and – in Kingston, Jamaica, and also at the uh, Waldorf Hotel in New York and in much less exalted places. But that particular thing you're talking about, uh, Chris, it was, it was a, a, a night when we all went to see Bob at the Beacon Theatre on, on Broadway New York. I don't remember exactly who was there. I think Christian Das was there. I think Raghu was there. I was there. Uh, we all went. And uh, at that time, I had worked with him, but it wasn't like we were backstage or anything. We were just in the audience, and it was remarkable. And Ramdas was there, and we came out And, um, it was just, we were all high and we weren't stoned. We were just high on it because being that close to the whalers was astonishing. They were the tightest band I've ever seen. Yeah. They were so tight, Chris, that it just hit your heartbeat all the time. It just, your heart never stopped concurring with the music. And the arrangements, which Bob did, were fantastic. And the audience was on their feet the entire time. We came out and, um, Ramdas ran away from us and at that point on Broadway there was a center some kind of center thing I think and you know divided the two lanes and he just bounded down them and was dancing on the in the street and we weren't liberated enough to do that right. but I'll never forget the image of of, of Ramdas my my great teacher uh just letting go and being so happy at this music um and, it, and you know, it wasn't kirtan music, but in a way it was. Mm. Because Bob only sang about, you know, what he would call Ja Almighty. And um, he only ever communicated about one thing, and that was one love. Right. And um, you, you felt it, you know. And in every encounter I had with Bob, and I don't know, I, I was with Bob 20 or 30 times, I don't know. It was just endless, because we did this little television public access show. Uh, with a bunch of rasters and I directed it. We had no money. We did it in the Ukrainian. It was a place where the Ukrainian national emigres uh, um, did their television show. It was above a welding shop on 58th and Ninth Avenue, and it was a terrible studio. You could hear the welding going on, and you know, and it was funny because every time Bob did a piece with us, and he did a lot, uh, we you'd always be interrupted by this incredible noise of welding going on below us, and he and Bob would go. 'm welding nah welding you know very important and and we 'd stop and you know chatter and then go back and so my relationship with Bob was one of the most precious things in my life because he was so uh, he was a wonderful person to be around, he was funny, uh, but never, never, never showed anything but uh, a deep respect for a higher reality. Mm. And my friend Earl Chin interviewed him one time. I, I directed the video. And he said to, uh, rather foolishly, I think Earl would say later, he said to Bob, what's it like to be a, a global superstar? <laughs> Bob said, not superstar, man. messenger. Uh, Humble yeah. messenger. Yeah, and That's the way he was. And amongst the, the pure classic reggae artists, they were all like that. Yeah. Uh, Stan Rodney, Burning Spear, um, you know, Peter Tosh for sure, Bunny Whaler, uh, Max Romeo. They were all very devout Rastafarians, and even though it was a strange, it is a a, a strange uh, sort of path for most of us, uh, and 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 kind of difficult to explicate in some ways. Their total immersion in it was so; it just infected me, Mm. you know. And I'm certainly not a Rastafarian, but I I felt this amazing power, uh, uh, the power of love and oneness, and anti-racism. I never met a Rasta, a real Rasta, who was in any way racist. They loved everybody, you know, Caucasians and Asians and (laughs) and African Americans and Jamaicans and, you know, uh, there was never, they couldn't even think that way.
3: Mm.
2: And it was just so wonderful to be around that, uh, particularly uh, coming from Jamaica, a poverty-stricken country with a constantly corrupt government where the people are treated badly and where the middle class to this day refuses to give any respect to the Rastas who they consider to be you know from the jungle man yeah. and they prefer to you know wear their nice um suits and 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 live in 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 a very bourgeois way so jamaica never accepted Rastas really uh, but now of course they're making tons of money from from everything and uh uh you know connected with the Rastas. and the most famous part of Jamaica is really reggae music, you
1: know? Yeah. Well, I really appreciate how you said that, you know, even though it's not formal kirtan, it still in a way is with the one love message and, you know, how deeply that connected with you because I I have very deep connections with, uh, of course, kirtan, but other kinds of music and as well as different spiritual traditions, you know, that there are certain elements that I have had just tremendous experiences with whether it's a certain kind of mantra or meditation practice or just reading some of the literature from the great wisdom traditions. So something I wanted to ask you about was, and this is particularly for those that are kind of newer on the path, um, trying to find their way um, in spirituality. I know I believe for you it it started, and I could be wrong, uh, but with TM, is that correct, with Maharishi in the very beginning? Yes. And then? Yes.
2: And uh, certainly in terms of meditation, my father was a Gurdjieff follower. So,
3: yeah.
2: um, you know, uh, it, it kind of started then, but I didn't understand a word of Gurdjieff at that time. Right. And it, it kind of fell on deaf ears. Uh, but when I, um, when I moved to America, uh, I did a television show for a few years. And uh, when the Maharishi came to the United States, I was lucky enough to meet him. And whatever people may say about him in these days... Um, it was a, a fantastic encounter, Great. and um, I got a mantra, as everyone does, and I started doing it. The effect of it was just to simply let me know that this was a technique that was available to me, and then I became involved with the Meher Baba um, because of, of, of um, a, a guy called Rick Chapman who introduced Peter Townsend to uh, Meher Baba, yeah. and I met Rick. And Rick uh, talked to me a lot about Meher, and I became deeply involved in his discourses. And never met Meher Baba, but was uh, that's how it sort of started. But you're right, TM was was really the the, the beginning of it. And I, I I'm, I'm blessed that that came up in my life. And I, I meet people now who are doing TM, and and you know it, it, it became fashionable at some point to sort of put it down, and I refused to do that because yeah. you know there's always sort of entrails of, 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 um, various paths that can be all kinds of silly or corrupt or whatever. But the center of that was to teach people to meditate and center and ground themselves and find some balance. Right. So I, re- I have great respect for it and will always be very grateful for having, uh, met Maharishi Mahesh Yogi.
1: Yeah. And I'm glad to hear you say that because I know that it does get a very bad rap from a lot of people these days and. I kind of I was never one to badmouth it but it was one of the only spiritual kinds of meditation and and paths that I really didn't look too deeply into because you know you go and you have to pay money to get your mantra. Yeah. So that was the one thing that sat a little weird with me. But then last year uh, I had the very fortunate opportunity to interview David Lynch uh for Origin Magazine and I am a huge David Lynch fan as you know many people are. He's yeah. Yeah. insanely brilliant well wow, uh, i can't imagine chris grosso and, and david lynch talk <laughs> that is a gem of reality it was uh it was oh. great it uh, i mean i only had like 15 minutes with him uh but it, they were 15 wonderful minutes um i, I i'll send you the interview because it oh. uh, it's online but it it was great it made the cover of origin magazine even so that was a real humbling thing but after i had that opportunity to speak with him And he was just as real and humble and as genuine as you see him, you know, in interviews and whatnot. That's really who he is. It was awesome. But so his foundation offered to uh, cover me going to get TM, to try it out, to get a mantra. And uh, so how could I say no? You know, so last year I went, this is when I was still living in Connecticut, and there was a wonderful... Uh, place up in Glastonbury, Connecticut. So I went and I did the ceremony and uh, you go back a few times. Um, and I had a really good experience with it. The one thing I noticed, it was very reminiscent of centering prayer from the Christian tradition mm. and what which father Thomas Keating is, uh, you know, very well known for having a big hand in bringing that to us. Uh, and what I found out later was that he actually had studied with uh, Maharishi and uh, had taught TM for a while, which I did not know that. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. All that to say, yes, I I thought it was a great experience. I've actually made a bunch of friends in TM, um, and they're all very wonderful, down to earth people. I've had no bad uh, bad communication, no ill will towards any of them. I feel they're all really, at least the ones I've interacted with, very legit, good people.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, but that's that's part of what I think is important for people, again, going back to the new on the path, is staying open, especially when you're trying to find what does and does not work for you, what practices resonate for you, what teachings connect with your heart. Um, so in your case, I know you started with TM and then you said Meher Baba. And then later, as we touched on a little, you met Ram Das through Danny Goldberg. And would you say that Ram Das and Maharaji has pretty much kind of been your your path since then well
2: yes uh and 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 you know to be honest i i think it's more because the people i met mm. uh who are there uh who are legion actually in my life um uh, ragu and and kd and and sharda and parv de marcus and so many others mm. uh were such great people you know they were just funny to be around and non pretentious and open and always so friendly and so um uh, you know what's the word um they were always honest like you just said chris about some of the tm people uh there was a realness about them it wasn't airy fairy it wasn't um us and them Mm -hmm. uh they were just likable you know And their houses were open to people and and they were just generous spirited and and a lot of fun to be around. And that sounds sort of shallow, but that's how I I began to um, solidify my relationship with them and learn from their experiences with the guru and and with many others. Because the great thing about those guys and those women was that they were always involved in both uh, bhakti devotional yoga and Buddhism of various kinds. Mm. So, you know, Raga's coming to New York tomorrow to see the Karmapa in New Jersey, and uh, the number of, of conversations I, I used to have with, with Krishna Das about various aspects of, of all kinds of Buddhism and their knowledge of of both, you know, like Thai and Burmese forest Buddhism and and then, you know, all the other aspects from His Holiness to the Karmapa to, to genuine uh, feelings about what is being taught in the Buddhist path, it led me in both directions. Mm. And you know, Chris, you said before about new people on the path. I still feel like I'm new on the path, really. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I've been at it for donkey's years, as I say, England. I don't know if that's an expression here. I've never used that expression <laughs> since I moved here.
1: <laughs> I've never <laughs> but, heard it, but thanks for bringing it up.
2: <laughs> donkey's years means forever, you know. And um, I, I'm just constantly, um, there's a sort of a binary Code of 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 paths here, where a, a, a person like Joseph Goldstein or Sharon Salzberg uh, can grip me for days, weeks on ends in term in terms of books and and also uh, their presence or even on mind rolling talking to them, and then back to bhakti mm. and and the devotional uh, path of of love and oneness. Uh, that binary thing has helped me not be sort of Obsessed with one thing, right? Uh, You know, they used to talk about the spiritual supermarket, which is a dangerous thing And I I understand that just dipping in and out of everything Uh, That can be a problem because you know, it's sort of like having a little bit of everything and not uh, not a lot of one thing but um those two things I'm always going to be Gripped by because they're two sides of the same coin, but they are very different
3: right
2: for people who are really who who may be listening uh, to this podcast and to others that are in the network uh you know it's it's a cliche but if it feels right it probably is if it feels wrong it probably isn't now that doesn't mean you don't get involved in disciplines that drive you crazy sometimes just by you know learning to do vipassana and sitting for hours as you know can you, you know you can go oh i can't do this this is beyond me i i just want to watch the simpsons or or downton abbey <laughs> or something we're all a bit like that except for the great masters. But. um When it feels wrong, um, move away from it until you find that it it may be right. But my advice, as such, is that instinct, that visceral feeling, must be trusted. The Buddha himself uh, said in various sutras that, you know, don't trust anything we say. You know, check it out. His Holiness Dalai Lama says the same thing. And I think that's a very necessary constituent part of of going down the path is to trust your instincts. Even if you think you're an ignorant idiot and you don't know anything, which I've felt thousands of times in my life, that (laughs) I just know nothing. Even if you feel that way, if it just feels wrong and you can't get with it, even if it may be great, it's not your path, karmically, move aside and and try something else or wait until something else or or a teacher finds you. Uh, Do not believe that you're inferior or incapable of following the spiritual path, uh, if you just don't find the one that you find yourself in, uh, I don't like it. It doesn't work for me. Uh, I can't do it. The essential thing is not to sort of then say it's wrong. Right. Unless it's some horrendous thing going on. I mean, there are cults and all of this in this recent film about Scientology that oh, Alex yeah. Dibney did, uh, Proves that some things can go dreadfully wrong in in, 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 in in you know I think ancient wisdom is is pretty trustworthy right and right. you know new stuff you have to sort of check it out and see if it works for you uh, I've known people who have done Scientology who've had you know uh, come to some awarenesses that were important to them, but um you know I, it, beginning on the path uh we get many letters of the network and and um, and you will too i'm sure. Uh, Saying, you know, I, I I just was lost. Mm. And what I, what I say to people with, with honesty, I think, is that I get lost all the time. Right. And, you know, I'll find myself in a situation where uh, I'm angry about something or I say something to someone that's just mm, hurts their feelings and then you're lost. Then the path is gone temporarily. So, you know, to think that there's some perfect creatures walking around (laughs) at retreats, you know, and just, oh, God, that's inaccurate. Yeah. Uh, In my experience, most people who are really great teachers and learners uh, understand that there's a fluctuation on a daily basis. Yeah. Now, if you're doing some very, very concentrated disciplines, uh, those will diminish at least at the time you're doing them. Right. But people have told me that they go to retreats, even in Maui, with with round us and everybody, and then they get home and they get depressed. And so it's a daily, not a battle or a struggle. It's just a thing where you have to settle, and go back and go deep and find silence, and there in that silence will come that tiny voice. And it is, you know, Christian theology has always said there's a small, silent voice within you, and I love that yeah. because. It is very small. It's not a booming, hello, I am God. It's more like this tiny little thing that just comes in the silence and you feel this peace and clarity. And that's the thing to trust, I think. Mm. It's a very long-winded answers, Chris.
1: And it's I'm appreciating that. <laughs> I am loving them because It's
2: great being interviewed. I'm, I usually do the interviewing. This is <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, I'm so glad to have you on. I'm, I'm very glad you're having a good time, as I, I am. Um but yeah, I you know, one thing that I had to learn the very very hard way was that the first couple of years I consistently was feeling like I was failing at being spiritual, as if there's such a thing. But you know, I really had that um cliche image of love and light and it's all bliss and of course that is certainly a part of it. We have these experiences and that's wonderful. But also if you're if you're really doing the work some stuff is going to come up, you know? And, and for me, when that stuff started coming up, especially in meditation, um, I started, you know, having these just reactions to them. Like, wow, you're, again, you're, you're failing at being spiritual, which I had to, you know, thank God I, I ended up learning like, no, it's what's, what's in front of you is the path. You know, it, it, it's all the path. It gets to a point where we're not compartmentalizing spirituality anymore. It's not just when we're formally sitting, on our cushion or in a yoga class. You know, it's it can be when we're washing our hands and you smell the scent of soap or you lose yourself in the act of making love or, or whatever the case may be. Like skateboarding for me is a very spiritual thing. Um, mm-hmm. People, you know, have nature mysticism experiences, hiking, it's it's really just an incredible thing once you get to that point. You know, I, I write in Indie Spiritualist about having... A, a very deep spiritual experience at van halen you know to van halen concert yep. and in my new book i also write about one i had at uh anthrax or not anthrax sorry motorhead concert um but you know i feel like when we keep ourselves open um you know spirituality it's it's constantly happening it's always around us it's ken wilber calls uh the material like spirit in action it's spirit evolving spirit waking up to more and more of itself um so that's something i try to reiterate to people you know is that and also just take it easy on yourself especially in the beginning you know there i i too still feel feel very new on the path even though it's been some years but there are days where i will just you know they won't be good days but you know i have to learn to have compassion for myself and for me that's where a lot of the buddhist teachings have been so extremely helpful um so I don't, you know, a lot of people think I'm Buddhist because I write a lot about Buddhism, but I'm I'm not. I don't call myself anything particularly. But similar to you, I have a deep reverence for Buddhism and at the same time, the path of bhakti. You know, it's the two of them, um, to me, complement one another. And for me, at least in a very beautiful way, it, it was, you know, through reading Be Here Now and Ram Dass' other books uh, and then starting to listen to Krishna Das where God, it just opened my heart in such an incredible way. And then, you know, I'll read the, some of the great wisdom teachings from Thich Han or Pima or uh, Nagarjuna, whomever it may be. And on the mind level, it's just, ah, and they, they come together and then it creates that heart mind. And it's a beautiful experience. And then also staying open to, I know we've talked about Yogananda and, you know, and he also, and uh, a lot of in the Hindu tradition, you'll hear a lot of love for Christ. And uh, and he, to me, is right along in that bhakti path. So there is a fine line you know, of just kind of dabbling and, and hanging out at that spiritual buffet or taking from it what really is working for you and, and kind of going with that, you know right. Yeah. So speaking of Ram Dass, you know, kind of coming back to that, I want to talk a bit about the the mind pod network, But before we get into that, in 2006 i believe it was when you kind of more formally started working with the love server member foundation is that correct yeah. and doing yeah. some video work could you talk about that a bit
2: yeah um it was great um you know my uh, friendship with with uh, the the maharaji satsang has been decades long but then um after ramdas had the stroke and mo- and, and moved to to hawaii to maui um people began to see that this you know these retreats and and things should be documented in a more in a better way and uh, because we weren't rolling in money and still aren't um (laughs) you know i i offered but i wasn't much of a cinematographer that time i'd sort of been a bit of a gentleman farmer about that because i started off on camera and then was a director and in those days, before um, computers and before Final Cut Pro and all these wonderful, marvelous things that anyone can use now to edit, uh, I'd, I'd used you know studios and post-production outfits and was was not really a, a shooter or an editor. I decided that I should be so for uh, to go to um, Maui and do these things. So I learned how to shoot and got a camera and and then learned how to edit. And it was a. a Maybe the word spiritual is a bit heavy, but it was it was a really enlightening experience for me because I realized that I knew first of all I wasn't very good at it to begin with. It took me years to to get it, but in service of trying to uh, document Ramdas and his guests, and uh, it felt they were like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so for almost ten years now, I've been doing that, and feel very honored. Actually, the word has got. Sort of a slightly stiff connotation, but I, I I do feel honored that they would trust me to do any of this stuff, and I became kind of better and better and better at it, and it improved my life because I became more of a uh, self-sufficient person in terms of the media, uh, and didn't have to rely upon people who were very expensive uh, to edit things. And even though I don't think I'm an editor of the caliber of the kind of people who. who who really edit feature movies and television shows and documentaries? I can I can make a a pretty good shot at it now, yeah. and mm-hmm. with the help of Raghu, who's a very an excellent uh, producer in the sense that he can look at something and point out what's wrong and right about it uh, instinctively, and he's he's dead on. He's really really good at this. Mm-hmm. So my partnership with him has been delightful and 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 extremely ameliorative in the sense that I've learned how to do these things that you know five-year-olds can do now but my beginning you know when i wrote the complete Beatles, you know i wrote it and someone else edited and someone else directed it and someone else produced it and it was all like that which is great uh you know but now um it's more of a one-man band for me and um even though i I respect tremendously respect professionals in the in the the media who are really good at it um i've learned to be much more sort of on the case and it does make a difference when you're hands-on uh and then, of course, Chris, the great, um, the great sort of surplus of this is to have become more, um, more embraced by Maharaji Nirmkareli Baba and others, and to have become much more uh, connected to the Buddhist teachers, back to that binary thing again, yeah. um, you know, and it's, so it's, it's just a, a fabulous thing really. Cause I mean, usually, you know, I've done things. I mean, I was telling Roger a couple of days ago that I've done things in my life. I mean, i made a film once about hog calling in Maine. I mean, I went to Maine <laughs> with a camera operator and shot five hours of people doing hog calling. I mean, nothing wrong with it, but it didn't exactly touch my heart. Right. And, you know, and I've done innumerable, in I mean, so many films about rock, rock and roll singers and, and reggae people, some of which were terrific. I mean, working with Roger Waters was a fantastic experience because Roger is a genius and an unheralded genius in some ways, and just to be next to him and, and to be working with him was fantastic. But on the other hand, I've done work with, with musicians and, and, and rockers uh, and had a very lousy experience. Right. You know, it, it, it's checkered checkered so when it comes to working with um and i'm not going to name the names of the bands that drove me nuts sure because of 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 of, you know sort of solar system size egos um and it's very hard to then you really are challenging your spirituality you know Uh, (laughs) you know it's like okay can i work with this idiot or not Uh, or maybe he's thinking why am i working with that idiot but you know to then come to a point where I'm regularly uh, editing and directing things with Jack Cornfield and Krishna Das and, and, and Trudy Goodman and Sharon Salzberg and Mirabai Bush and our low-hanging fruit, as we call them. Uh, what a fortunate thing that is, mm. because it's teaching me all the time. I mean, I, there, you know, Chris, it's really interesting to be looking at something like Ramdas, and And, you know, when you're editing you're just repeating, 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 finding that exact moment to put the razor blade, the, the digital razor blade. And and, you, and so sometimes I find myself having heard a sentence of wisdom 60 times, wow. you know, over a period of a couple of days. And finally, I, you know, I, I'm, I go beyond the editing and go, oh my goodness, <laughs> I get it. I, I know what they're talking about. So that's fabulous and um, is, is a, a great corollary to having worked with... Um, every imaginable kind of thing, you know. I mean, I worked on the, in the West Bank in 89 uh, in the Second Intif- Intifada and was in Hebron and Ramallah and East Jerusalem and saw firsthand uh, the conflict and the, and the, the great, great suffering uh, that I experienced there. I was there for, I think, five or six weeks. And that's one side of it where all of it was, was painful mm. and dangerous. Uh, and I don't want to do a Brian Williams here. It wasn't like I was. <laughs> sorry, Brian. I have I have a lot of respect for you. So I don't want to say anything negative at all. But um, I, I wasn't being shot at. But I saw terrible suffering. Yeah. And that was the other side of this. You know, to have the privilege of sitting uh, near Ramdas or or Jack or, 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 any of, or Roshi Joan, you know, is such a such a blessing because as a filmmaker you know you come across stuff that is that hurts your heart you know and and you go home drained and 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 kind of depressed because you wonder how could there be so much suffering in the world and how could we be so oblivious to it most of the time so that spectrum is also a spiritual uh awakening yes. uh, dealing with that kind of of suffering uh is it's hard it's hard i was last night i was with a deputy <laughs> Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations um, and um, at an event for about Sweden, he's Swedish, yeah. and he was telling me how he travels the world constantly and 95% of what he sees is just hideously awful. Mm. And this man, um, you know, a wonderful, beautiful individual. Uh, I was so deeply moved by his speech that he gave three feet away from me because it was in a little restaurant actually. And um, my heart leapt because I saw that there are some people in this world who are called politicians or bureaucrats and we tend to put them down and rightly so sometimes. But then there are some men and women who are doing extraordinary work out there and um, uh, karma yoga of the deepest kind. I mean, he this man came from a very uh, working class a, a farm in northern Sweden and, and eventually became number two at the U.N., Wow. And everyone who was there last night um, was just silent and moved by his spirituality and his compassion. He said, the only thing, two things that interest me in life are passion and compassion. And this is from a man who couldn't be the next Secretary General. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you see this suffering as a, a journalist. I wouldn't call myself a journalist, but certainly I can come close to that sometimes. And then you're, you're tested and it's it's then when you're shooting mirabai bush it's it's such a delight, yeah,' because, you know you, you're not seeing suffering as much as a wisdom about suffering,
3: right, right,
1: yeah. well, it sounds like what an incredible experience i I hope to uh in December get out to the next Hawaii uh you know gathering I haven't been to one I've never actually even met Ramdas i did have the very, uh, good fortune to Skype interview him a few years ago, which I right. wrote about, but, uh, I've never actually met him in person. So I hope to get out there soon. And, um, but you know, when Ragu asked me to come and join the mind pod family, you know, it, it was just like, uh, yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> wow. Um, you know, I've, I've always had an affinity for interviewing. I've been doing it for several years for my website. Um, but I'd actually kind of taken a break, Writing this newest book took a lot out of me, and uh, he just asked at the exactly right time, and it's a tremendous honor, you know, to to be working with these people. Like you mentioned, it's uh, it's humbling, and uh, and and I'm sure will be what an incredible learning experience. And um, so, I guess you know, before we wrap this up, I wanted to talk a bit about the MindPod Network in general. You know, I know it's Mindrolling launched. Before MindPod became a network, correct. So, if you could talk yep. a little bit about mind rolling into MindPod and and where we're at today with this endeavor.
2: Well, um, Ragu and I started talking about doing a podcast because of Duncan Trussell, yeah, our dear friend and and um, and guru in terms of podcasting. <laughs> yes. Although Duncan, we just did a podcast with him, and he 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 just. Hates us calling him that, but Raghu niggles him, as they say, yeah. uh, by just constantly calling him that. But he did, he taught us how to do it. And um, he, he had, uh, Duncan loves Ramdas, and that's how he, he came into to Raghu's sphere, Love Serve, Remember Foundation. And then Raghu just said, Well, why don't we do one? Or, or Duncan said, Why don't you do one? And then Raghu, uh, maybe fortunately or not, said, Well, I want to do one with, with David. So that's how I, I got sucked into it. And um, Raghu, for anyone who knows him, is a, 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 a wonderful uh, human being, but also a very disciplined uh, person yeah. and, and really knows how to get things done, uh, as opposed to me. And uh, he's, he's pulled me along. And uh, so we, we, we did it. And then a, a team kind of grew uh, of um, basically Noah Lampert and Rachel Fisher and uh, Nathan Milburn and 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 uh, others, and I think it came up. Noah and Rago and others actually came up with the idea of the network, and um, you know mentioned it to me. And I, I I thought you know wow, is that is that a reality? Is that a possibility? And it is mainly because of of kind of friend friend connections. Uh, I, I, if we'd not known any of, of these men and women, I'm not sure this would have happened. Right. But now that it has happened, um, you know, when we encountered your work and you yourself, um, it soon became apparent to us that you were communicating in a way that was essential to us, um, in the sense that we didn't just want to be a bunch of 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 sort of uh, ex hippie '60s people talking to other ex-hippies, 60s people because that what would that do and we needed to be able to communicate with everyone we could and when, when I was uh, fortunate enough to read The Indie Spiritualist and then to, to meet you on Skype um, for our podcast with you, we all thought oh, you know, this is the way because you're uh, sort of consummate Communicator coming out of, of some difficulties and suffering uh, to people that are younger than ourselves, and and there's no pretentiousness, and they can identify with your path, so therefore they can trust you uh, as to what you're saying about the path, and uh, trust is an essential part of communication, uh, on particularly for things that are not you know so-called empirically provable, right. are, you know, mystical and magical and uh, uh, ameliorating. Uh, when we when I read your book, I read it in one go, actually. I don't think I ever told you this. I just oh. read the whole damn thing one from <laughs> beginning to end. And I thought, that my first thought was, why wasn't this around when I was 22? Oh, wow. Uh, that was my first thought. Um, my second thought was that there were gems of wisdom and that you have a, a, a facility uh, to communicate uh, with a group of people that may like us, but, you know, we're essentially... Um, you know, grandpa. And uh, you know, I, I don't see myself as that. Uh, I do have children that, that, that are your, your age, you know? And um, so to expand, it was, it was relatively easy to get Jack Cornfield and, and Sharon and, and, you know, uh, everyone involved, Krishna Das, um, you know, to get those, because there, there was meat there. There was, there was a lot of, of talks and stuff already that we could build upon. Right. Essentially, though, as I'm sure you know, a podcast is somewhat different from a talk. Uh, it's hard to describe why, uh, but it, it's more like the old radio in the sense that people talk uh, to you as if you're sitting right there, right. Uh, top down. And that attracted us. And um, we, we knew from the start that there would be uh, beings who would just come. Uh, and you're really the first one uh, to do their own stream and we're thrilled about that um, uh, because of your wisdom and your background and your honesty and, and that really gets through mm. and it's not like we have you know, Raga used the word mission sometimes, I tend not to um, it, it, but it is sort of a, a mission that, you know, uh, there's so much nonsense spoken across the airwaves in every way uh, and sure I love to watch Homeland and I love you know I'm not snobbish about this stuff right. and, and I, I, you know I've, I've, I've been elevated by everything from Bob Marley to Metallica it's not it, you know I'm still there I, I love rock and roll music I love the blues I love reggae music I love great movies you know um, it, it's not like we're some sort of cave dwellers you know but uh, we're also not young in the classic sense of that word so to expand it is very important mm. uh, danny goldberg is going to be doing a podcast very soon so we're expanding it to a point where uh, it, it will someone can choose you know and say okay this is you know like you d- used to do in the old days in a car you would make that that radio just you could press the button it would go immediately to the station you wanted i don't know right. that's that <laughs> but you know i remember choosing them you pulled them out a bit when yeah. you found like then you pushed it in and forever afterwards you were listening to WBCN or whatever it was and you knew you would be getting, you know, a great blues or a great country music, whatever. That's what we wanted so that someone could just tune in and say, well, I don't want to be listening to Silver. He's just, <laughs> I mean, you know, just too, too many words there, I, you know, or whatever. And, and, and gradually there would be some synergies. And people would say, well, I don't know who Sharon Salzberg is, but I, if, if they're in, on the same page as Chris, I'm going to give it a shot. And then one has the possibility of creating for people uh, a deeper and wider universe uh, of teachers and friends. Yeah. You know? Because even though obviously you can't be friends with everybody who listens, I get letters and stuff from people that I feel like I've known them all my life. And, and uh, I can communicate back
1: in a very open way. Yeah, and and that is that is so precious. It 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 really is. Well, and first of all, thank you so much for your very generous and kind words. They're deeply moving. Sincerely, I mean that. That's that means the world to me to hear. Um, What's what's the basic theme of your of your new book, Chris? What is it? Well, it's called Everything Mind, and uh, comes out October first from Sounds True. And Ken Wilber wrote the foreword for it, which for me was humbling because. The two great teachers in my life are Ram Dass and Ken Wilber. And there's many other great ones, but those are the two big ones for me. Um, so the, I mean, the overall theme, it kind of picks up where Indie Spirituals left off and it goes a bit deeper into the teachings, um, that I, I, I talked about in Indie Spirituals, but it, it, you know, it goes a bit deeper. It's still the, the raw way that I write, um, The difference is instead of where Indie Spirituals was kind of more sporadic, um, just short entries, this one actually is formulated as a book. So there's chapters that kind of coherently go, you know, in and out. And thank God to my editor, because that's not how it was originally written at all. But (laughs) actually, I have have the same editor that uh, works with Lama Surya Das. And so she she had read Indie and, and loved it um well before she knew she'd be working with me so you know the fates just lined us up and and uh and I told her this is our book you know cuz yes I wrote it but her guidance really uh-huh. made it a book but you know so yeah it talks about all sorts of good stuff from again more Ram Dass and Maharaji wisdom to some Ken Wilber stuff to Bukowski and uh uh-huh. you know bands and and you know all sorts of stuff so you know, hopefully it'll it'll go over well as indie spirituals for the most part did. But uh, yeah, so again, October first. I just finished the edits on it last week and it's nice to have that done now. Oh so, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Whenever you finish something that you know, it it, it it it's your child. I mean it's a bit of a cliche, but it's out there now, yeah. or will be on October first. And and you're sort of relieved of it in a way and <laughs> yes. now you can move on to the next thing or at least have feedback yeah. about it that you can then relate to. Yes. Uh, you know, writing a book is a very difficult thing for those that haven't. Uh, it's a delightful thing, but it, it really tears at you. Mm. And it's like making a film, maybe even more rigorous, actually. You know, the, the word is there, and the uh, word speaks to people. And if if you suddenly think, oh, those are the wrong words, you, you feel like, you know, trashing the whole thing and oh. doing it again. You know, I mean, it's in a filmmaking, it's not quite the same because you know you've got what you've got, and it's not your words as much as pictures you've taken and so on, but it is organization, yeah. And the equivalent of the editor is usually the the director and producer and editor together, right? But, um, God, and you know, October is just around the corner, really. It doesn't seem so because we're just getting out of winter and I know <laughs> want to enjoy spring and summer, but uh, we're all going to be looking forward to that, and when it comes out, we'll be doing we'll be doing work about it well, uh, thank you. you know well i mean this is you know it's a great feeling uh yeah it's it's a great feeling to meet a human being who has you know been through stuff and is honest about it and then uses it to help other people not only people who've been through the same stuff but people who haven't exactly and Yeah. to see the you know we just did this this um Podcast with uh, Kittisaro and Tanasaro, Tanasara, his his uh, partner, uh, Buddhist scholars and teachers, and to me the whole you know undercurrent of their work is is using suffering, right. uh, and and trying to use it to to liberate and to to see the truth, and to achieve you know a humanity about life that that is sometimes very very far away it seems, and in 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 the case in in some of the anecdotes that you told about yourself uh as i say it's very utilitarian in a way because more people have difficult lives than have perfect lives right uh, not that anyone has a perfect life but sometimes a person who's had hardship either self-inflicted or not um can look at some of this stuff and go now I, I can't really read that because i'm not there I'm in a dark place, or I was in a dark place, and one of the things you 've done, and there are others uh, who are doing it
3: yeah.
2: uh, is uh, you know is to is to show that yeah, the path is open to everyone, and that the the, 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 the difficulties and obstacles can become you know signposts, doorways okay. to uh, to a better place if you like and um everybody should be grateful for this because there was a time when there was a division yeah. and uh, people uh, who who had you know, been through some of the drug problems and who had a, a, a penchant or a taste for, say, punk music or heavy metal music or just rock music, for that matter, yeah. uh, were seen as being sort of over there. And then there were other people who were not over there who you thought, okay, those are... Those are good people, you know, yeah. and that's all patent nonsense. We know it is, um, but we need people to tell us that. Yeah, and you're one of the ones that are doing it, and that's that's why we we so wanted you to be part of our, our our scheme of things here.
1: Well, thank you, and 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 yeah, it's what I try to do. Like it, you know, it's not lost on me each day that holy shit, I'm still alive. You know, after yeah. the way hey. I was living, so it's like, what else can I do except to try to give back and be of service and and I'm glad you mentioned, like, the, yes, my, my greatest hardships were through my years of addiction and, and strugg- my struggles with that. But it was probably about four years ago, roughly, that I was interviewing Father Thomas Keating. And I mentioned to him, you know, that I'm in recovery from uh, drugs and alcohol. And he laughed, you know, this gentle 80-year-old man laugh. And he's like, well, I'm in recovery too, but I'm in recovery from the human condition. Uh-huh. You know, and and... Sounds so simple, but I was stuck in such a place in my head where I'm thinking, you know, suffering, addiction, addiction, suffering, that those simple words helped shape my writing and the way I was, you know, I, I try to put my message out there. Because again, yes, addiction is the greatest part of my suffering, but like the Buddha said in his first noble truth, you know, you take a human birth, suffering is bound to happen. It's going to happen. But as he went on to teach, you know, the degree to which we suffer is much more in our control than we think if we in his in the buddhist case you know walk the eightfold noble path or all the great wisdom traditions have their wonderful teachings to help us shift that and and to lessen it and to work through it most importantly and be there with it and stay open to it so yes i you know i must
2: say chris before we end that my version of that in the 60s was really john lennon Mm. because people may not know this or may not remember or appreciate this these days but there was a time when pop music was all about you know lost love love romantic love love lust uh this and that and all on that and not that that was all bad you know i was i liked sinatra but lennon and his and his cohorts talked about suffering i mean if you listen to lennon's song mother or god or various songs that he did when he was solo after the Beatles, but even during the Beatles. But after the Beatles, Lennon took his suffering and laid it out for all of us. Mm -hmm. And it was very courageous. But to him, it wasn't courageous. It was all he could do because he was so honest and to the bone. So John Lennon's solo work helped me. I have no doubt about that, that I didn't know John Lennon, but I, I just, you know, I met him a couple of times, but I didn't know him. And then I'd listen to those solo albums and hear that, 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 that pain. And yet, what came out of it were these marvelous songs like Instant Karma, and just, you know, they were just great. They elevated you, but you couldn't get away from John's inner pain. And that was my first lesson in how suffering can be transmuted and alchemized into something greater, and, and, or not greater, just something that can find balance in us. Mm-hmm. And so I think what, what, Chris, what you're doing is sort of like that, that you're taking your raw experience and helping us, that, those of us, almost all of us, who've had that same kind of pain and helping us relieve ourselves of it and transcend it. That's enormously important, enormously important, and I'm grateful to you for that.
1: Well, thank you, and I, I do my best, you know, and that's, that's all I can do, I try, and uh, some days are better than others, but always with a very honest intention to help others and myself in the process. So thank you, David, so much for your kind words. Um, You know, thank you to you and the whole MindPod family for inviting me to be a part of this most incredible endeavor. It's uh, hugely an honor and what an honor it is to have you on this first broadcast. So thank you
2: very very welcome i'm I'm so glad to meet you on visually finally yes finally (laughs) hopefully we'll be able to shake hands and have a hug before too long
1: yes july i'll I'll talk to you about that later but i think i'll be in the city in july so hopefully we'll get together Great. great thanks david
2: thank you thank you